This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric distal femoral physeal fractures from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Distal femoral physeal fractures are common fractures in the pediatric population that result from direct trauma in children with open physes. Diagnosis is confirmed with plain radiographs of the femur and the knee. Treatment is usually operative with close reduction and percutaneous fixation followed by casting. These fractures are at high risk for the development of future growth arrest. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as demographics of pediatric distofemoral physeal fractures, by definition these injuries occur in patients with open growth plates, and know that these injuries must be considered in patients with open physes to avoid misdiagnosis with collateral ligament injury. Moving on to the pathophysiology, as far as the mechanism of injury for distofemoral physeal fractures, these injuries are often the result of direct trauma with some degree of rotation and are most commonly secondary to a valgus-type force or a hyperextension force. Keep in mind that distal femoral physeal fractures are most commonly Salter-Harris II fractures, where the physis fails on the tension side and the metaphysis fails on the compression side, creating what's known as a Thurston-Holland fragment. Keep in mind that injury to the physis occurs at the zone of hypertrophy. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll go over the osteology, muscles, ligaments, blood supply, and physeal considerations of the knee. As far as the osteology, the distofemoral physis is formed from a single ossific nucleus that is present at birth and is the first epiphysis in the body to ossify. As far as the muscles, both heads of the gastrocnemius and plantaris muscles originate just proximal to the physis. This leads to flexion of the distal fracture fragment when the fracture line is distal to muscle insertion. As far as the ligaments, the collateral ligaments attach distal to the physis at the level of the epiphysis. Stress places tension on the collaterals, which transfer the force to the physis. The ACL and the PCL attach to the epiphysis at the intercondylar notch, and keep in mind that these may be injured. As far as the blood supply, the femoral artery travels through the adductor canal medially above the metaphysis and courses in the popliteal space. The popliteal artery is directly posterior to the distal femur. The popliteal artery trifurcates at this level, and due to poor collateral circulation, the popliteal artery injury may result in loss of lower limb viability. As far as physeal considerations of the knee, general assumptions include that leg growth continues until 16 years in boys and 14 years in girls. As far as growth contribution, the leg grows 23 millimeters per year, with most of that coming from the knee in contrast to the upper extremity, where most of the growth is away from the elbow. So specifically, the proximal femur contributes 3 millimeters per year, or 1 eighth of an inch per year. The distal femur contributes 9 millimeters per year, or 3 eighths of an inch per year. The proximal tibia contributes 6 millimeters per year, or a quarter of an inch per year. And the distal tibia contributes 5 millimeters per year, or 3 sixteenths of an inch per year. Patients presenting with a pediatric distofemoral physeal fracture typically have a history of significant trauma. They will have symptoms of pain with inability to bend the knee, and they are unable to bear weight. Physical exam may reveal pain and swelling. Patients may often be in the flex position due to hamstring muscle spasm. They may have tenderness along the physis in the presence of a knee effusion. You may see varus or valgus knee instability on exam. And finally, keep in mind that swelling in the popliteal space may be a sign of vascular injury or disruption.
As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, and oblique. Stress radiographs to look for physis opening if there was suspicion of physeal injury have fallen out of favor due to the risk of physeal damage, patient discomfort, and possible need for sedation. Keep in mind that MRI or ultrasound have replaced stress radiographs in this setting. As far as indications for radiographs, you should obtain these at presentation, and then close follow-up with repeat x-rays should be done if the initial radiographs are not definitive and you treat these injuries as a possible Salter-Harris-1 fracture. Findings on radiographs may include physeal widening. Remember that normal is 3 to 5 millimeters. Keep in mind that direction of displacement is suggestive of the mechanism of injury, so anterior displacement is due to hyperextension. Posterior displacement is due to hyperflexion. Medial displacement is due to valgus. And lateral displacement is due to varus. As far as MRI, this is the diagnostic modality of choice to confirm physeal fracture. An ultrasound can be indicated to help confirm physeal fracture. A CT may be necessary for evaluation of intraarticular extension and to define fracture fragments to plan fixation. Angiography is occasionally necessary to evaluate for a vascular injury, however this is uncommon, but it may be necessary in fractures with wide displacement and posterior spiked fragments. Treatment for pediatric distofemoral physeal fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes long leg casting, and this is indicated for non-displaced fractures, and these injuries are treated for four to six weeks. Keep in mind that close clinical follow-up is mandatory. Operative options include close reduction and percutaneous fixation, followed by casting. Other options include an open reduction and internal fixation. Close reduction and percutaneous fixation, followed by casting, is indicated for a majority of cases. This is specifically indicated for displaced Salter-Harris 1 or 2 fractures. Keep in mind that displaced fractures successfully reduced with closed methods typically should still be secured with fixation as the fracture patterns are unstable. Closed reduction and percutaneous fixation followed by casting is also indicated for some Salter-Harris 3 or 4 injuries if anatomic reduction is achieved. Postoperatively, you should follow these patients closely to monitor for deformity. Open reduction and internal fixation is indicated for Salter-Harris 3 and 4 injuries with weight-bearing articular involvement. It's also indicated for irreducible Salter-Harris 1 and Salter-Harris 3 fractures. Keep in mind that irreducible type 2 fractures are most often due to interposed periosteum on the tension side of the fracture. Now, let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. We'll talk about closed reduction and percutaneous fixation, as well as open reduction and internal fixation. With respect to closed reduction and percutaneous fixation, as far as the reduction, you should avoid multiple attempts at reduction. Keep in mind that the reduction maneuver consists of 90% traction and 10% manipulation. As far as fixation, if the physis must be crossed in Salter-Harris 1 and Salter-Harris 2 injuries with a small Thurston-Holland fragment, use smooth K-wires and remove at 3-6 to six weeks after surgery. In Salter-Harris 2 fractures with a large enough metaphyseal fragment, these should be fixed with lag screws across the metaphyseal segment. Moving on to open reduction and internal fixation, it's necessary to place an incision over the displaced physis to remove interposed periosteum. Keep in mind that fixation should avoid the physis if possible, and finally keep in mind that you should usually add postoperative immobilization. Some complications to keep in mind include leg length discrepancy or angular deformity, which is the most common, septic arthritis, as well as popliteal artery injury and compartment syndrome. Leg length discrepancy or angular deformity, again, is the most common and results from physeal disturbance. 
Keep in mind that limb length inequality of greater than 2 centimeters can occur in one-third of cases. Remember that this correlates with fracture pattern, specifically 36% of Salter Harris 1 fractures, 58% of Salter Harris 2 fractures, 49% of Salter Harris 3 fractures, and 64% of Salter Harris 4 fractures. Limb length discrepancy or angular deformity is minimized with anatomic physeal alignment, which is critical, as well as close follow-up following non-operative or operative treatment. As far as treatment of limb length discrepancy or angular deformity, no treatment is necessary when the predicted final leg length discrepancy is less than 2 centimeters and there is no significant angulation. However, treatment is indicated for discrepancies between 2 to 6 centimeters. This can be done with epiphysiodesis of the contralateral distal femur, plus or minus the proximal tibia. A physeal bridge excision is indicated if there is a physeal bar of less than 50% and greater than or equal to 2 years or 2.5 centimeters of growth remaining. As far as septic arthritis, intraarticular pins have a risk of septic arthritis. And finally, popliteal artery injury and compartment syndrome is rare, however, is most common with anterior displacement of the epiphysis or a posterior spike at the fracture site. As far as the prognosis of distofemoral physeal fractures, there is a 30 to 50% rate of physeal arrest that often leads to growth disturbance and deformity. So make sure to counsel patients of the poor prognosis associated with this fracture pattern. Keep in mind that an increased incidence of complications have been associated with Salter Harris classification type, fracture displacement, and surgical hardware invading the physis. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 12-year-old female is involved in a car collision and suffered a Salter Harris II fracture involving the physis of the distal femur. Subsequent workup shows this to be an isolated injury. Following surgical fixation to address the injury, what complication would you expect and what is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Avascular necrosis of the medial femoral condyle and a prolonged period of non-weight bearing. 2. Knee stiffness and immediate use of a continuous passive motion device. 3. Physeal growth disturbance and close clinical observation. 4. Physeal growth disturbance and contralateral distal femur epiphysiodesis. And 5. Physeal growth disturbance and ipsilateral intramedullary limb lengthening. The correct answer to this question is 3. Physeal growth disturbance and close clinical observation. So the patient suffered a distal femur fracture involving the physis. These injuries often lead to growth disturbances, leading to either angular deformity or leg length discrepancy. Given her proximity to skeletal maturity, that is two years remaining, the projected leg length discrepancy would be less than two centimeters and can be followed clinically. Distal femoral physeal fractures are often seen among adolescents after high energy sporting collision, usually from a valgus directed force. The epiphysis separates on the tension side while the metaphysis fractures on the compression side, producing a Salter-Harris type 2 pattern. Physeal disturbances are common after these injuries, and all treatments should be done in a manner to avoid further damage. With this in mind, reduction should be done under general sedation to allow gentle reduction, and if anatomic reduction can be maintained closed, percutaneous pinning or screw fixation should be performed, sparing the physis when possible. If the projected leg length inequality after this injury would be greater than 2 centimeters, a contralateral physeal procedure may be necessary if growth arrest observed after the index procedure. 
Otherwise, these can be followed closely until maturity. Basiner et al. performed a meta-analysis of growth disturbances following distal femoral fysial fractures. They found a 52% overall rate of growth disturbance with non-displaced fractures having a 31% rate of growth disturbance and initially displaced fractures having a 65% rate. Salter-Harris type 4 fracture patterns had the highest incidence of growth disturbance. This demonstrates the significance that even non-displaced fractures may lead to physeal arrest. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following injuries should be definitively stabilized with smooth Kirshner wires? And the choices are 1. A Salter-Harris 1 distal femur fracture. 2. A Salter-Harris 2 distal femur fracture. 3. A Salter-Harris 2 distal femur fracture with a large metaphyseal fragment. 4. A Salter-Harris 3 distal femur fracture. And 5. Tibial apophysitis or Osgood-Schlatter disease. The correct answer to this question is 1. Salter-Harris 1 distal femur fracture. So a Salter-Harris 1 distal femur fracture should be treated with close reduction and fixation with smooth K-wires across the physis and casting. Distal femoral physeal fractures are associated with a high rate of complications. Age, mechanism of injury, fracture displacement, Salter-Harris classification, and surgical fixation may play a role in the outcome. The main factor contributing to angular deformity is post-traumatic growth plate arrest. Crossing the physis with rigid internal fixation should be avoided if possible. Threaded K-wires, threaded screws, and plates may all create a rigid tether around the physis and should not be used. Percutaneous smooth pin fixation across the physis is advised. Dahl et al. performed a study to determine whether the position of percutaneous smooth pins across the physis contributes to physeal bar formation. They performed the study on 30 rabbits and placed two 0.05 smooth K-wires in a cross-pin configuration. Computed tomography was used at 4 and 8 weeks to determine bar formation. They found five physeal bars after removal of the pins. They conclude that cross-pinning with smooth K-wires results in a low rate of physeal injury. Pins that cross the physis both centrally and peripherally appear to have the same risk for physeal bar formation. Garrett et al. performed a study to determine the effect of percutaneous pin fixation in the treatment of distal femoral physeal fractures. They reviewed 55 patients with a mean age of 10 who had sustained distal femoral physeal fractures. 40 were treated with percutaneous pinning after reduction, 4 were treated with screws, and 11 with casting. Formation of a physeal bar occurred in 12, that is 21.8% of patients, with the rate rising to 30.6% in patients with high-energy injuries compared with 5.3% in those with low-energy injuries. Physeal arrest was associated with the Salter-Harris classification. Percutaneous smooth pins across the physis were not statistically associated with growth arrest. Arcator et al. performed a study to predict the outcome of physeal fractures of the distal femur. They retrospectively reviewed charts and images of all patients who sustained a distal femoral epiphyseal fracture over 10 years. They found 73 patients with a mean age of 10. They found that the Salter-Harris classification correlated with increased complications. Fractures that were displaced also had a higher rate of complications, but the direction of displacement did not. Patients treated without surgery had a lower incidence rate of complications. Among the surgical group, a higher incidence of complications occurred when the physis was violated by hardware. They conclude both Salter-Harris classification and fracture displacement are significant predictors of outcome. Moving on to the next question. 
a nine-year-old girl was playing basketball and suffered a twisting injury to her right knee with her foot planted. She had immediate inability to bear weight, and by the time she was taken to the training room, there was visible swelling about her knee. Given her age, which of the following is true regarding appropriate initial imaging for her injury? And the choices are 1. MRI should be done right away to assess for ligamentous injury. 2. A stress radiograph should be done to rule out physial injuries. 3. CT scan is needed to rule out tibial spine avulsion. 4. AP lateral and oblique radiographs of the knee. And 5. A notch view of her knee is needed to rule out tibial tubercle avulsion. The correct answer to this question is four, AP lateral and oblique radiographs of the knee. So initial evaluation of a torsional knee injury in a skeletally immature patient should include non-stress radiographs of the knee. This is typically sufficient to diagnose pediatric fracture patterns, such as distal femoral physeal fractures about the knee. To quickly review, skeletally immature patients have a variety of injuries about the knee that differ from adults. These include distal femoral physeal fractures, tibial tubercle fractures, and tibial spine avulsions. Ligamentous injuries can also occur similar to adults. Radiographs such as AP, lateral, and oblique views should be part of the initial evaluation of these patients and typically can detect these fracture patterns when present. Other views to consider are sunrise views to assess the patellofemoral joint or notch views if concerned for an osteochondral defect. Stress radiographs to confirm non-displaced Salter-Harris 1 distal femoral physeal fractures can be done, but have fallen out of favor due to patient discomfort and the need for sedation to properly stress the knee. If a Salter-Harris 1 fracture is suspected and confirmation is required, current recommendations would be to protect the knee in a long leg cast and obtain repeat radiographs in two to three weeks. Alternatively, MRI is a sensitive test for non-displaced physeal fractures, but is not routinely ordered for this purpose. Mayer et al. reviewed the evaluation and management of pediatric knee injuries, including distal femoral physeal fractures. They comment that standard radiographs, including an oblique projection, should be routinely done during the initial evaluation and are often diagnostic of even non-displaced physeal fractures. CT and MRI should not be part of routine evaluation for pediatric knee injuries and are ordered only when needed to confirm diagnosis not made with the screening plane films. Moving on to the next question, an 11-year-old girl sustains a distal femur physeal fracture. Because of fracture extension proximally through the metaphysis, her injury is classified as a Salter-Harris type 2 fracture. Assuming she has complete physeal arrest, which of the following is the closest approximation to the expected limb length discrepancy? And the choices are 1, 1 centimeter, 2, 2 centimeters, 3, 3 centimeters, 4, 4 centimeters, and 5, 5 centimeters. The correct answer to this question is 3, 3 centimeters. So this patient has sustained a distal femoral physeal injury. If she undergoes complete physeal arrest, a leg length difference will develop. Insufficient data is provided to perform either a Paley or Mosley methods of predicting leg length discrepancy. Thus, traditional assumptions that girls achieve skeletal maturity at age 14 and the distal femur grows 9 to 10 millimeters per year must be used. Therefore, she will have an approximate discrepancy of 10 millimeters per year times 3 years, which equals 30 millimeters or 3 centimeters. The most common distal femur physeal injuries are Salter-Harris II fractures. These injuries have a high incidence of physeal arrest and growth disturbance. 
Garrett et al. reviewed patients who sustained displaced distal femoral physeal injuries. Most patients were treated with closed reduction and percutaneous pinning. Physeal arrest correlated with increasing severity based on the Salter-Harris classification. Arcator et al. reviewed patients who had sustained distal femoral physeal fractures. 59% of fractures were displaced. Physeal arrest was the most common complication. Fracture severity and fracture displacement correlated with higher rates of complications. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following statements best describes the prognosis following a fracture of the distal femoral physis? And the choices are 1. There is a high risk of non-union. 2. There is a risk of premature growth arrest that frequently causes deformity. 3. There is a high risk of premature growth arrest, but it rarely causes deformity. 4. There is a low risk of premature growth arrest, but when it occurs, it usually causes deformity. And 5. There is a low risk of premature growth arrest, and when it occurs, it rarely causes deformity. The correct answer to this question is 2. There is a high risk of premature growth arrest that frequently causes deformity. So displaced physeal fractures of the distal femur are at high risk for causing premature growth arrest of the involved physis and subsequent deformity. Non-union of these fractures is extremely rare. And moving on to the final question. All of the variables listed are associated with an increased risk of complications with treatment of distal femoral physeal fractures except, and the choices are 1, articular incongruity, 2, presence of fracture displacement, 3. Direction of fracture displacement. 4. Surgical treatment. And 5. Violation of the physis with surgical hardware. The correct answer to this question is 3. Direction of fracture displacement. So all of the variables listed are associated with an increased risk of complications with treatment of distal femoral physeal fractures except for direction of fracture displacement. Distal femoral physeal fractures are associated with a high incidence of complications, including physeal arrest, growth disturbance, and deformity. Several studies have looked at risk factors for complications associated with treatment. Lombardo et al. reviewed 34 distal femoral physeal fractures and found limb length discrepancy occurred in 36% and varus or valgus deformity occurred in 33%. They found the development of deformity appears to be related to the degree of initial displacement of the fracture, the exactness of the reduction, and the type of fracture. Thomason et al. reported a retrospective analysis of 30 distal femoral epiphyseal plate fractures. They showed the best results occurred when fractures were anatomically reduced and fixed with pins. That's all for this review about pediatric distal femoral physeal fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.